Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. In this latest and greatest episode, we are going to cover everything from the end of the Civil War through when the United States beats Spain in the Spanish-American War and emerges onto the world stage as a great power with colonies and a navy to match our newfound status. We are also going to touch on some of the changes that the Navy went through during this period and leave off around 1900, right before Theodore Roosevelt becomes president and before the lead up into World War I, which we'll cover in the next episode. So when we left off in the last episode, the Civil War era Navy at the end of the war was immense. The United States Navy had 671 ships and 58,000 officers swelling its ranks. But the Navy was built for blockading the coastline of an enemy without a real Navy and for taking the southern rivers and wasn't really well suited to fighting a war with another major naval power in a what we would call today a peer to peer fight. And in the years following the Civil War, the nation was preoccupied with both reconstruction, which was the physical rebuilding and attempts to rectify the political, social and economic legacies of slavery that held back the millions of newly freed black Americans in the decade after the Civil War. Reconstruction ended about a decade after the Civil War due to some political backroom dealing, and we're still dealing with today the legacy of our national failure to protect the rights and provide even the most basic opportunity for these newly freed slaves. The other occupation of the nation was the westward expansion, and railroads made this a lot easier. And that meant filling in with states all the land between roughly the Great Plains and California. And all of that was done by about 1890. And not coincidentally, around 1890, the Navy began getting some more attention. But by 1870, just five years after the end of the Civil War, the Navy had shrunk down to 52 warships from the 671 and about 10,000 officers. And this was somewhat similar to the naval retrenchments after the Civil War and the War of 1812, where the immediate crisis had passed. And rather than continue to fund the Navy, the nation spent money in other places and the Navy's capacity significantly withered. The Navy that did exist returned to pre-war squadron duty around the world, protecting American interests and trade. And the war plan, if we did go to war with a European power during this time, was to employ some Alabama-like commerce raiders that would be fast and sink enemy shipping, and then to use all the monitors that we had in layup, bring them back into active service, and they would serve as coastal defense. Another significant change that the Navy encountered in the years following the Civil War was the massive expansion of the undersea telegraph cables. And while that may not seem like a big naval change, it was because previously... A round-trip message to go from East Asia to Washington and back could take over a year. And so naval officers were really left to their own devices to determine what they should do. But now, a telegraph could go from Washington, D.C. to the nearest port, like that. And so naval officers felt that they were being micromanaged from Washington, D.C., and this caused a lot of grumbling. Which is an idea that would make the truly micromanaged flag officers of today laugh out loud with their daily video teleconference calls 
There are reams of emails, instant messages, and all the other direction coming from the Pentagon, which for better or worse just goes to show that the centralization of command has continued unabated. Overseas during this era, in the 20 years or so following the Civil War, it became increasingly obvious to the United States Navy that it was outclassed in every way. Foreign navies were building increasingly bigger and more technologically sophisticated ships every year, while the United States Navy progression was glacially slow. Particularly embarrassing was the Virginia's Affair of 1873, so less than 10 years after the end of the Civil War. The context of this is that elite landowners in Cuba were fighting a 10-year-long rebellion against their colonial overlords in Spain, and there were factions inside the United States who supported them. President Grant at the time did not support war against Spain or overtly helping the Cuban rebels and decided to keep the U.S. neutral. But in 1870, some private citizens purchased a former Confederate blockade runner and used her to run the Spanish blockade of Cuba to bring volunteers and weapons and ammunition from various ports to aid the Cubans over the course of the next three years. The Spanish understandably considered these guys pirates, and in 1873, the captain of the Virginius, former Confederate Commodore Joseph Fry, was captured by the Spanish. They were tried as pirates and sentenced to death. The British and American crew were starting to get executed, and in the first couple of days, 53 sailors, including Captain Fry, were executed and mutilated before the executions were stopped by the British when a warship appeared off the coast of the Santiago coastline and threatened to bombard the city unless the executions were stopped. Even though the Americans executed were very obviously guilty of running the Spanish blockade, the American public reaction to the executions was angry, and the leading newspapers at the time were calling for a war against Spain. While Spain and the U.S. were negotiating about reparations regarding the affair, the United States Navy was ordered to put on a show of force near Cuba. So the Navy gathered up its fleet off of Key West, Florida for maneuvers and then promptly embarrassed itself when a bunch of ships doing these maneuvers broke down and the Navy was really showing its age and poor repair. Luckily, there was a peaceful resolution to this Virginia's affair. Because in the words of Admiral David Porter, the fleet showed itself to be very unsuitable for war purposes, either to contend against the improved class of vessels now being constructed by all foreign powers, or to cut up an enemy's commerce. The Virginia's affair, in addition to some other incidents, caused Congress to slowly begin to realize that they did need to allocate the money for a more modern Navy. And in 1883, Congress approved the ABCD ships which if you remember back to, I believe, episode four, were semi-modern warships that were made of steel and had electric lighting and breech-loading guns, but they still also had sails because, unlike the European powers, we did not have this extensive collection of overseas possessions to serve as recoaling stations in the event of war. We were actually acquiring a few slowly, though. Our first overseas possession was acquired in 1867. It was this small, uninhabited island in the middle of the Pacific called Midway, destined just to be forgotten by history, I guess. 
and slowly Congress was authorizing more funds and the American industrial base was building itself up to the task of building a modern battleship. If I were to pinpoint a turning point, it would probably be the year 1890 for a few reasons. One was that the census of that year revealed that the Western frontier was closed, so to speak. And to expand farther, the United States would need to look overseas. The Navy was finally producing a steady supply of large battleships that befitted a nation, which was a world power at this point, economically, but not militarily. That year, in 1890, Congress also approved funding for the Indiana class of battleships, which would go on to be the first truly world-class group of modern battleships that the Navy had built in decades. And then finally, in 1890, the influence of sea power upon history, 1660 to 1783, was published. It was published by an, at that time, little-known naval officer, Alfred Thayer Mahan, and it proved to be one of the most influential books of all time. I'm not kidding. This book changed history. The influence of sea power upon history provided an analysis of how the small island country of Great Britain had become so powerful and how it now commanded a global empire upon which the sun never set. Mahan theorized that it was on the back of the Royal Navy that Britain had gained its empire and its power. The Royal Navy had this huge fleet of capital ships which drove their enemies from the sea in wartime and allowed the Royal Navy to control trade. And trade allowed Britain to get rich. And from this wealth, they were then able to pour more resources and more money into a powerful fleet further locking down overseas trade in sort of a self-perpetuating flywheel. Mahan's book focused on the UK, but its implication was that the United States could and should follow this same strategy to emerge as one of the leading global powers. The book also stressed the lesson of concentrated fleets of capital ships as a linchpin of national power used to defeat another country's concentrated fleet of capital ships. And this lesson not only caught on the United States, but also Japan and Germany as well, which would go on to have history shaping effects over the course of the next couple of decades. This book contributed to the naval arms race that led up to World War I in Europe, which we'll definitely delve more deeply into in the next episode. And finally, it spurred Congress to massively increase naval investment here in the United States. Mahanian naval strategy also called for some sort of Central American canal, say in Panama, which would easily link the Atlantic and Pacific coastlines and allow fleets to move from our coasts easily. And also, again, stress the importance of a collection of overseas territories that would serve as logistical and coaling stations for a capital fleet, which would allow the Navy to defend America away from the homeland in a form of offensive defense. In the event of war, that is still one of the primary strategic mandates of the United States Navy to this day. So with our slowly growing naval might, the U.S. began to actually use our might to intervene in foreign affairs. We were contesting with Great Britain and Germany for control of the Samoan Islands. We were contesting with Great Britain for the Hawaiian Islands. And we were beginning to use our foreign policy in Latin America in a more assertive way 
and specifically in defense of the Monroe Doctrine, which the United States claimed as its right to be essentially the enforcer of order in the Western Hemisphere and push out the Europeans to a greater extent. This new expanded navy was a more technical affair, obviously, than the previous old wooden navy ships, and it required a new type of sailor. And throughout this period of doldrums leading up to naval expansion, the one bright spot was the continued professionalism and training of the both officer and enlisted corps. On the officer side, we had the U.S. Naval Institute, the Naval War College, and the ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, were all established during this era. The Naval War College in particular was meant to, in part, teach naval officers about the broader art of war and to build upon the lessons learned during the combined operations during the Civil War to more effectively fight war as a whole. In 1899, the line and engineering corps were finally merged, but during this period, officer advancement was still painfully slow because there was no up-or-out system that forced officers who weren't going to keep moving up to retire, and so, and so there were a lot of old officers that were just clinging on until old age or infirmity kicked them out. On the enlisted side, there was also this huge revolution going on, probably even more significant than on the officer side. The old way to man Navy warships was to just recruit civilian sailors and then immediately send them aboard a warship where they would just learn the relatively few differences between civilian sailing life and military sailing life on the fly, such as how to load a cannon, etc. But there were many problems with this model. One was high turnover. Another was your enlisted force is often multinational and considered not very high quality. And there were questions of loyalty during potential wars. And then communication was also hard because there were so many different languages spoken on board. Not all these foreigners necessarily spoke English. And with a new Navy that was a national pride, we were going to need American crews. And so briefly after the Civil War, we had a sort of apprentice system where young men were apprenticed aboard warships and they were known as boys. And that lasted until 1880. But. We began transitioning away from that as the technical demands increased farther and and we had land-based naval schools were developing and they first were just retired warships moored, but eventually they became truly land-based. And as we started recruiting more sailors from inland populations without nautical backgrounds, we needed to train them. And so recruiters would go around the country and try and recruit these sailors. And this is where you get a lot of the classic recruiting posters that focused on adventure and travel. Think join the Navy, see the world style posters, because this really was an exciting lure before the era of cheap air travel for the average person. Joining the Navy was the only way you'd get to see these cool foreign ports. And so these land based classroom trainings developed at major naval bases, and these continue today. Today, the Navy runs hundreds, if not thousands of schools all around the country, which teach just about every conceivable skill from basic engine maintenance to photojournalism to complex battle tactics as the skill set of what you need to fight and win and succeed in all of the Navy's missions change. The darker side, though, of this new Naval Enlisted Force specifically was increased segregation. Prior to the inland recruiting of mostly white recruits, the 
enlisted force at least had been multiracial with all races filling most roles on the ship and everyone was living together in an integrated manner. This new, more white force did have a big marginalizing effect on black sailors' opportunities. And for a few years in between 1919 and 1932, the Navy even stopped recruiting black sailors entirely. So the test for America's new Navy came right at the end of the 19th century. In 1896, the Navy commissioned the world-leading Indiana-class battleship. And with that, announced that the United States was again a military force to be reckoned with. When it was commissioned, Indiana was briefly the most heavily armed battleship in the world and was clearly designed to engage and destroy the main enemy fleet and not to protect our coastline or to perform commerce raiding. To maximize the impact of these new battleships, coordinated battle fleet tactics were needed. And I can tell you from personal experience that this is something that takes a ton of practice to do well. And the consequences of not doing it well are collisions as the British demonstrated when their own HMS Camperdown sank the flagship of their own Mediterranean fleet, the HMS Victoria, in 1893 during fleet maneuvers. Since these massive new battleships that countries were building to be the backbone of their fleet were vulnerable below the waterline, for a while, naval rams were in vogue before they were eclipsed by eventually self-propelled torpedoes. And so there was a lot of concern that less powerful countries would build small, inexpensive torpedo boats. And so to chase off small, inexpensive torpedo boats, navies developed a class of small, fast ships with smaller caliber but quick-firing guns called torpedo boat destroyers, which were eventually shortened to just destroyers that we know today. Then to get rid of these destroyers, a middle class of ship known as cruisers, which had really a couple classes inside it varying from heavy destroyers to light battleships were generally tasked with eliminating the enemy's destroyers which in a sort of game of rock paper scissors were very vulnerable to enemy battleships in turn and so with this mix of ships the united states navy found itself thrust into a new role around the world the last remnants of what had been the greatest empire in the world the sprawling Spanish empire was just disintegrating. Cuba was fighting yet another war for independence, and the Philippines were also engaged in a revolution against their Spanish overlords. Close to American shores, the bloody and absolutely atrocity-filled Cuban revolution was just red meat for the yellow journalism of the time, which was less concerned about the truth of a story than the gruesome photos and headlines that would sell lots of papers. The public was just lapping up these tales of blood and torture and war, and the public soon began to agitate for helping the Cuban people throw off the yoke of Spanish oppression. In February of 1898, the USS Maine was sent to Havana, which was the capital of Cuba, to monitor the situation and put pressure on the Spanish to protect American lives and commercial interests when late one evening there was this huge explosion that ripped the main apart and it sunk her, killed two-thirds of her crew. And the yellow press of the era seized on the explosion. They blamed the Spanish immediately without any real evidence and were calling more loudly than ever for war, knowing that, of course, nothing sells more papers than a good war. As we know now, 
It was probably a spontaneous coal fire, which set off an explosion internally that destroyed the main, but they didn't know that at the time. The Spanish prime minister knew of the rising war tide in the United States, and he was desperate not to start a war that he couldn't win, but he was trapped by the political considerations at home. The Spanish public saw Cuba as an integral part of Spain, and to give Cuba up would have just been political suicide. And so the Spanish prime minister couldn't offer full independence to the colony, which at this point was just an endless money pit anyway. In the United States, even though President McKinley didn't want to go to war with Spain, he was trapped by his own political considerations, especially after an internal Navy investigation concluded incorrectly that a mine had probably sunk the main and the public was just frothing at the mouth and ready for war. And so, with the political leadership of neither country really wanting it, on April 25th, Congress declared war on Spain. And so, at the time of the declaration of war, a young Theodore Roosevelt was serving as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. His boss, the actual Secretary of the Navy, had taken a day off, leaving Roosevelt in charge. Roosevelt took advantage of his very conservative boss's absence and dashed off a bunch of orders to Navy commanders, putting them on a war footing. To Commodore Dewey, who was in charge of the Pacific Fleet at this point, who, if you remember back to the Civil War episode, had been a young lieutenant under Admiral Farragut and been part of the naval effort to capture New Orleans, Roosevelt sent the order to keep full of coal in the event of declaration of war Spain it will be your duty to see the Spanish squadron does not leave Asiatic coast and then offensive operations in Philippine islands over. When Dewey received his orders, he collected together his squadron of six ships, which were dispersed across Asia. He collected them at Hong Kong and he had the benefit of one of these new innovations of the new Navy. Just a couple of years earlier at the Naval War College, a group of naval officers had been tasked to draw up a series of the first ever formal contingency plans for various war scenarios, one of which was a war against Spain. And this war plan called for seizing Spain's colonies. And so Dewey, working off of that template, knew that since America had no coaling stations in the area, in the event of war, he essentially had to go and take Manila. Prior to war, he made some important preparations, such as painting his ships gray, drilling his crew, and throwing overboard all the unnecessary equipment that would get in the way during wartime. So when Congress finally did declare war in April, Dewey left British Hong Kong and sailed straight to Manila, where his orders were to capture or destroy enemy vessels, and he pretty much, as you'll see, did that. When Dewey arrived off the coast of Manila, the capital of the Philippines, he called his captains together to his flagship, the Olympia, and began to prepare for battle. After their planning, the captains went back to their ships, and it was the middle of the night, and the captains brought their crews to general quarters, darkened their ships, and just before midnight began steaming in a quiet, single-file line past the fortifications which guarded either side of Manila Bay. The ships had almost made it past the fortifications without being spotted when one of the Spanish forts did open up on the American ships, but that fort was quickly pounded into submission by the American guns. And so at that point, none of the other forts felt particularly willing to open up on Dewey's column. 
at dawn, Dewey's column finds itself in Manila Bay. And from there, they see the Spanish defending squadron. But this defending squadron was a sorry force. It was led by Rear Admiral Don Patricio Montojo. And its backbone was two cruisers, one of which was wooden and couldn't get underway under her own power. And both of which had smaller guns and less armor than their American counterparts. The Spanish Admiral knew that he was going to lose and that it was just a matter of how he was going to lose and at what cost. And so he set up his defense of the city at anchor away from the guns of the city's defending fortress, which would have helped him out tactically a little, but it also would have subjected the city to bombardment by any American shells which went long, and it also would have put his ships farther away from shore. And so Montojo wanted to put his ships as close to shore to give his crew members the best chance of surviving when their ships were inevitably sunk. So the Spanish battle line was anchored, immobile, and Dewey hoisted signal flags to order his captains to prepare for general action and to follow the flagship. With his column of ships only 200 yards apart, Dewey ordered his squadron to approach the Spanish waiting line. At 5,000 yards, he gave his famous order, you may fire when ready. And the Olympia then opened up with her 8-inch guns at the defending Spanish, who couldn't even return fire at this range. The American column approached another 1,500 yards so they could bring their smaller guns to bear as well. And the American fleet began the first of five slow passes that were parallel to the Spanish line, gradually growing a little closer and closer with each pass. Admiral Montojo's one working cruiser did attempt to rally and steam towards the circling American fleet to disrupt the murderous fire, but it was quickly set on fire, disabled, and then scuttled when the entire American fleet's fire immediately concentrated on it. As heavy as the fire was from both sides, both sides were horribly, horribly inaccurate, and Dewey got some reports that his fleet was running low on ammunition And since he hadn't forced the Spanish to surrender yet, he withdrew his fleet to the middle of Manila Bay after the fifth pass to reconsider his options and give his crew a chance to eat some breakfast. While the crew was eating breakfast, Dewey and his captains again gathered aboard his flagship, and there he heard some good news. There had been zero casualties on the American side, and in fact, the ammunition report he had received had been wrong and only 40% of the ammunition had been expended. The Spanish, on the other hand, were looking at pretty grim reports. The Spanish remaining wooden cruiser was burning and would be abandoned shortly, and the Spanish Admiral Montojo decided that honor had been satisfied and he withdrew the remains of his fleet deep into a smaller bay within Manila Bay. But at 10.30, Dewey decided that, hey, It was time to finish off the Spanish, and so he sailed towards the remaining Spanish flotilla, and fighting both that and a nearby battery, he makes quick work of the badly outgunned defenders, and by 1230, the Spanish finally signal that they're surrendering, and they scuttle their last remaining ship or two. Dewey had utterly fulfilled his orders. There was no Spanish ship left afloat. No American sailors were killed, and there were only eight injured, compared to the 167 dead and 214 wounded Spanish. 
Dewey sent messages to the rest of the batteries around the city that his fleet would just destroy the city of Manila if they were fired on again. And those batteries fell silent. And with that, Dewey had more or less gained control of Manila. Back home in the United States, Dewey was the war's first hero. All the nuance of the battle and the Spanish Admiral Montojo's humanitarian decision to hobble his defense and the lopsidedness of the forces involved were basically ignored in the patriotic fervor, and Dewey just became this larger-than-life naval hero. But back home in Manila, Dewey had a problem. While the Spanish defense of the city had been destroyed, Dewey was reluctant to land and take actual possession of the city because he didn't have a supporting ground force to police it. And so what Dewey decides to do is institute a blockade while waiting for reinforcements from San Francisco and arrange for the return of an exiled Filipino insurgent leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, to lead a provisional Filipino government. Nobody, including Dewey himself at this point, knew what Washington, D.C. was planning to do with the islands. They could be used as a bargaining chip against Spain for the peace negotiations, or the United States might intend to liberate them, or maybe the Philippines would be the first colony. With all this uncertainty, a bunch of foreign imperialist powers sent observers to the Manila area. Pretty quickly, there were British, French, German, and Japanese warships all in Manila Harbor. The Germans in particular were recently unified and late to the colonization game, and they definitely seemed poised to seize the Philippines as a protectorate if the United States did not. As German ships began to congregate in the region, this soured relations between Germany and the United States specifically, which would go on to have major geopolitical consequences of eroding American-German relations in the lead-up to World War I, which would kick off less than 20 years later. So for more than three months, Dewey maintained his blockade of the increasingly warship-clogged geopolitical tinderbox of Manila before finally Major General Wesley Merritt arrived with an army expeditionary force of 11,000 troops large enough to control the city of Manila. More than three months after defeating the Spanish fleet, the army landed under Navy cover and seized the city on August 13th. Significantly not invited to the surrender ceremony was the Filipino resistance leader Emilio Aguinaldo, who would then go on to lead the Filipino resistance for a couple years against the United States because the United States didn't seem inclined to relinquish the Philippines. On the opposite side of the world, President McKinley was trying to end the war as early as possible to return to his domestic agenda. And that meant getting Spain to recognize Cuba as independent. To accomplish this at the least cost and with the least American bloodshed, President McKinley ordered a blockade of Cuba, which would cut off the Spanish army fighting the insurgents from resupply and from reinforcement. Gathering most of the Atlantic fleet off of Key West under Rear Admiral Sampson, a blockade was quickly established off at the Cuban coast. In Spain, the political leadership saw this blockade coming and ordered the Spanish Navy to break the Cuban blockade over the Navy's objections that they lacked the strength to do so. And so, under the command of Admiral Pascal Severa, the dilapidated, undersupplied Spanish fleet of four cruisers and three destroyers 
sailed from Spain to Puerto Rico. When their fleet arrived in the Caribbean, one of the destroyers had to be abandoned as unseaworthy, and the remaining ships were low on everything, including coal and on food. For a week after they got to the Caribbean, they port hopped to a couple of ports in search of supplies and to avoid an American squadron that was waiting for them right near San Juan. Admiral Severa eventually pulled up to the South Cuban port of Santiago, where his presence was immediately reported by the Cuban insurgents there, which made its way to the Navy. And here, the Spanish fleet was in a hard spot. Admiral Severa could either continue to play a cat and mouse game with the Americans in the Caribbean, but his fleet from there would only become more battered and worse supplied as time went on. He could not retreat back across the Atlantic to Spain because of his orders and because he lacked the coal to actually make it out there. And so he was left with the option of essentially just waiting for Samson's fleet to arrive in Santiago and trap him in harbor, which, after a bit of a delay, is finally what happened when Samson's blockading force of five battleships and a bunch of smaller warships arrived on June 1st. A battalion of Marines seized the nearby Guantanamo Bay, which would serve as a logistical base for the United States blockading forces, and the United States fleet essentially decided not to flush out Santiago Bay because leading into the bay, there was a big minefield and also harbor defenses. But they didn't want to wait infinitely, and so the Army did land units, including a volunteer cavalry regiment led by the former Assistant Secretary of the Navy and future President Theodore Roosevelt, who had resigned his post at the Navy Department to go volunteer and fight at the front. These Army forces attacked the Spanish defenders, but they couldn't completely dislodge them, and so they settled into a siege to starve out the defenders and the Spanish fleet. The Spanish general in charge of Cuban operations sensed that the position of Santiago was futile. He didn't have the strength to relieve the siege. And so he ordered Admiral Severa to run the American blockade to avoid what he saw as a morale-crushing effect of having the squadron surrender in port. And so over the objections of his admiral, who knew that his squadron would likely be destroyed in the attempt, he was told that, It is preferable for honor of arms to succumb in battle. And so, on the morning of June 3rd, a Sunday, the Spanish squadron made the run for safety. Their timing turned out to actually be pretty good. Uh, One American battleship and two cruisers were recoaling at Guantanamo Bay, and another cruiser and her escorts, with Rear Admiral Sampson on board, were out of blockading position because they were carrying Admiral Sampson to meet with General Schaefer who was leading the army's siege of the city. So when the Spanish fleet was coming out, only seven ships remained in a semicircular blockade of the port. The Spanish decided to go for a high-risk, high-reward strategy, and with that, the first ship out of the bay was the Spanish flagship, the most heavily armed and armored one, and it exited the channel and got up to full speed and attempted to ram the most heavily armored American blockading battleship the Brooklyn, to give an opening for the rest of the fleet, which would take at least an hour to exit the channel one by one. It was a calm Sunday morning, and the American blockaders didn't expect the sortie. When General Quarters bells rang when the Spanish were sorting, 
the men were rolling out of their racks and from the pews straight to battle stations. The Spanish ramming tactic ultimately didn't work because the Spanish ship was underpowered and too slow, but it did cause some brief confusion in the American blockading line. After the ramming attempt failed, the Spanish flagship realized that and turned southeast along the coastline to try and run from the American blockaders, but she was pretty quickly torn apart. And from there, it was a turkey shoot. All of the remaining Spanish ships made similar tight runs against the coastline to the southeast, but were quickly sunk or driven aground. As the American ships were picking up survivors and the Cuban insurgents were executing many of the survivors who fell into their hands on the beach, one small, lone, fast, and basically unarmed Spanish ship did manage to outrace the American blockaders along the coastline for a few hours before she ran out of her good coal and then was forced to use the bad coal, which made her really slow, and so she got caught and beached as well. In this great naval engagement, a grand total of one American died, and the Spanish fleet was completely destroyed. And so notch up another humiliating victory for the Americans against the Spanish. With the Spanish fleet in the Western Hemisphere defeated, the Navy made plans to attack the Spanish coast while the politicians in Washington, D.C. and Madrid began to negotiate. Before this was necessary, however, to attack the Spanish coast, the Spanish bowed to the inevitable and surrendered. Even though the United States Navy had never faced a serious opponent in the Spanish fleet, the two utterly lopsided victories seemed to prove Mahan's theories of naval power, and this victory was definitely noted by both the German and the Japanese military establishments. The twin legacies of the Spanish-American War for the United States was, one, our emergence as a great power, and two, our emergence as a colonial power. During the war, Congress had annexed Hawaii, and in the peace terms, Spain surrendered Guam, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico to the United States. As I mentioned, the Filipino resistance leader Emilio Aguinaldo would continue to fight for freedom against the United States in a guerrilla war. With new overseas possessions to support, the role of the Navy would continue to expand in the next couple of decades. All right, so I'm going to end this episode here on the cusp of becoming a great power and the real expansion of the new Navy. The next episode, we're going to talk about a smorgasbord of topics covering the Panama Canal and its importance to American naval might, Theodore Roosevelt and the crews of the Great White Fleet, the American series of interventions in the Caribbean, and most importantly, my favorite naval topic of the era, the Dreadnought Revolution. The Dreadnought was one of these quantum shifts in naval technology, similar to the Ironclad, where it just wiped the slate clean in terms of who had the most powerful navy and allowed some of the previous lagging powers a chance to catch up. The most important of these previously lagging powers was Germany. And Germany at this point was an absolute beast. Recently unified and with an utterly freaking massive industrial base, the German military looked at this new dreadnought thing, read their Mahan, and saw an opportunity to overtake the Brits. The consequences of this would go on to have literally history-shaping effects, and I am super interested to delve into this next week with all of you. We are also going to cover World War I, and spoiler alert, since the American naval contribution 
was relatively small and we did not participate in any really interesting or major battles, I'm just going to use my prerogative to tell you about the biggest, the baddest battleship battle in world history between the Royal Navy's Grand Fleet and the Imperial German Navy's High Seas Fleet. Because, well, that's just how cool this Battle of Jutland is. So stay tuned. Tell your friends if you enjoyed the podcast. And of course, please subscribe if you've not done so already. Also, you know how you have that one crazy uncle who always used to watch the History Channel before it became the Ice Road Truckers Channel? Or maybe how that guy down the block who spent a few years in the Navy likes to talk about back in the day? Well, I bet you that they would love this podcast if you told them about it. So if you wouldn't mind, go tell them about it and help spread the word. And until then, I will see you next week, and I hope you have a good one. Thanks. We saw the Pacific and the Atlantic, but the Atlantic isn't romantic, and the Pacific isn't what it's cracked up to be. We joined the Navy to do or die, but we didn't do, and we didn't die. We were much too busy looking at the ocean and the sky, and what did we see? We saw the sea, we saw the Atlantic and the Pacific, but the Pacific isn't terrific, and the Atlantic isn't what it's cracked up to be.